Good morning. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. And uh, today, if you could go, if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 10. We're going to go through Acts chapter 10 and most of 11 today. The fun thing about Acts 10 and 11 is that 11 is kind of a recap of 10. So it's, you know, it's like a lather, rinse, repeat sort of situation um, as needed. And... um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the context of 10. Nisha did such a good job giving us an encouraging word last week. I so appreciated it and mentioned while she was sharing that I was going to come in and do 10, like some of the context and the meaning of 10. So here I am, and there's so much meat on this bone that I cannot wait to dig into it with you guys. But um, man, it's so good to be with you. So good to be with you this morning. So if you're at Acts chapter 10, if you will recall, this is a story all about how my life got... No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm just nutty this morning. Um, this is a story of Cornelius and his, um, his visitation from the angel of the Lord and Peter coming to Cornelius and sharing. This is the introduction of the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, into the family of faith. And there's so much here that I think will give us such a deep understanding of the character and nature of God that I want us to delve really deep in. So everyone look at me up here, everyone's eyes, everyone's eyes. I know that sometimes when we get in this environment, we're like, okay, the guy's gonna drone on forever. But let me tell you, this is such good stuff today. So I want everyone focused on this today. So Chapter 10, verse 1 starts, and it says this, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion that was known as, known as the Italian regiment, in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius, stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel of the Lord spoke to him, uh, who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, I want to stop there. The the way I'm going to do this is we're going to read a section and I'm going to just dissect as much as I can out of this because one of the most beautiful things that we need to understand about scripture is that historical context, cultural context, scriptural context, all of these things, the context provides so much meaning to the smallest details. And if we don't dig into the context, we miss some of the smallest details that bring us so much truth about the nature and character and the way God operates throughout time and in our lives. Agreed? Okay, that was not convincing to me, the speaker, so I'm going to say this again. Agreed? So what I expect all of you to do is go out and buy some commentaries and start deep diving into cultural context and historical context and scriptural context, because I'm going to tell you this right now. I was unexpectedly blown away and fell in love with Jesus and the scriptures anew this week, as I dug and dug into this, the more I saw, the more I was overwhelmed with the goodness of God. And as a side note, man, what would it change in our lives if the filter that we looked at everything was the goodness of God? Okay, soapbox down, and now back to the scriptures. Okay, so 
So some things I want you to see about Cornelius here that are so incredibly important and so powerful in the revelation of what God is doing in the scripture. So Cornelius, again, he was a Roman. He was a Gentile. He was, he was a devout man who loved God, but he was not a convert to the Jewish religion. If someone like this, a Gentile who believed in God, was fully converted into the, into the Jewish faith, there would have been a couple things that would have happened, one of which being circumcision. And I'm not going to camp on circumcision, but I'm going to say circumcision like 18 times more this because it's uncomfortable, but we're going to steer into that skid because that was just part of the culture. So something to know about this, which is an odd detail to share in church, was that he was not circumcised. A little bit of information there, a little private, a little uncomfortable. We're going to go for it, though, because it's important. He was not fully converted into the Jewish religion, but he was devout and loved God. He had been serving the Roman Empire as a centurion in this area for years and had been so influenced by what he saw of the God of the universe, that he as a Roman citizen became devout in following and pursuing God, even though there were significant limitations he would experience as a Gentile not fully converted into the Jewish faith. So that's important to know here because some of these details that we see spell out God's heart and intention in what he did. So again, Cornelius, he is this Roman guy not fully converted into Judaism, but loved God. Not only did he love God, but he brought his family and his community around him to love God too. And you see this later in, this, in the passage, but you see this as well, that one of the men that he sent was another Roman soldier who also deeply believed in God and was devout as well. So this man who had encountered God just through the environment he was in, not only was a man that gave his life to Jesus, but not to Jesus at this point yet, but to God, but was bringing others into that relationship too. Would you say he was a pursuer of God? Yes or no? Yes. And Proverbs 8, 17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me will find me. This is an important context. And we can remember when Jesus even requoted that in a different way of those who seek will find, those who knock the door will be opened. What we're going to see in here is the fulfillment of God's character and promise that those who diligently seek him, find him. Point number one, put that in your head, put it in your heart, never let it leave you. Okay. Another thing that we see here, when the angel encounters him, he says, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Beautiful statement, but there's so much meaning behind it. Now, again, he was a Jewish, not a Jewish convert, but he believed in, in the Lord of Lords. He believed in what the Jews believed. But as a non-convert, there were serious limitations to what he could experience in worship to God. Gentiles were not allowed into the temple past the, the court of the Gentiles, which was on the outer area. So there were limitations to what he could experience. He could offer offerings to the Lord, but someone else would have to present them. This was just true for Gentiles. You know, the Jews were just fine with Gentiles believing in God and wanting to offer sacrifice, but there was a limit to the intimacy or the, the closeness they could experience to God because they were unclean. Gentiles were unclean, and therefore they could not enter into those holier places because of this, the stance that by virtue of the fact they were not Jewish, they were considered impure, unclean, not worthy. Put that in your head, okay? Okay. So here's a man devoted to God, learning all he can about God, but he's limited in the way that he can worship God in the Jewish system, which required sacrifice and entering the temple and these specific things. So you have to keep this in context. 
But yet when the angel of the Lord comes to him, he says, your gifts to the poor and your generosity basically have gone up to God like a sacrificial offering. The angel of the Lord is saying that God, basically he's relaying, relaying this message to Cornelius. God has seen you and he has seen your heart. And in spite of the limitations that you have being a Gentile, the things that you're doing, the generosity, the way you're living out your faith is the offering of sacrifice going up. You don't need the temple. You, by your actions, God is seeing this and he's doing it. What do you think that would have meant to someone like Cornelius? Who loved God, who was pursuing God, who wanted relationship with God, but by virtue of his circumstances and his birth and his nationality was limited in the intimacy he could experience, but he was faithfully pursuing God with every way that he could. And God responds to him saying, I see you. I see your heart. I see your devotion. And the things that you're doing are a sacrifice, an offering to me. What an incredible thing. I want to I delve into the kind of the context culturally and religiously for the Jews to understand a little bit about this even more. So the devotion of Cornelius is so incredibly noteworthy and it's so important powerful, but it's even more powerful when you understand kind of the rhythm of Jewish religious life. See, for the Jews, there were times of specific private prayer that happened throughout the day, and there were times of sacrifice that happened at the temple. And these things, there were three times of personal private prayer that happened in the morning, at noon, and then in the evening. But in the temple, there were three times of sacrifice that happened throughout the day. And and it kind of worked like this in the Jewish temple, where at like dawn, the priest would get the first lamb for the sacrifice prepared. And then at 9 a.m., that first sacrifice would happen in the temple. And if you were a Jew, you could go to the temple and you could be closer into that reality. You couldn't go as far as the priest went, but you could go closer. You could offer your your sacrifice. You could participate in the prayer and the worship, which had to have been incredible at the temple. And then at noon, there was another time of prayer. And then also at noon, the priest began preparing yet another lamb for another sacrifice. That would be the three o'clock, 3 p.m. or evening sacrifice of the lamb. And so this rhythm happened. And then the personal prayer, for those who were in private prayer, they weren't at the temple. Of course, the temple was in Jerusalem and Jews were throughout the, the, the area. Not everyone could go to the temple for worship. So they had this rhythm of private prayer where they would pray in the morning and they'd pray at noon and they'd pray at three, matching somewhat of the rhythm of the temple. Which is so incredibly important to note that when the scripture says that Cornelius was praying, when was he praying? At three in the afternoon. Cornelius was not allowed to offer the sacrifice at the temple. Cornelius was not in Jerusalem. He was not connected to the temple, but he kept the rhythm of prayer and worship that a true Jew and a true worshiper of God would have done. In fact, at that moment of his prayer, At that moment and time in Jerusalem, at the temple, a lamb would have been being sacrificed. That that offering of worship would have been happening right there. And no doubt Cornelius was feeling in his life and in his pursuit of God, that disconnection between what was allowed for the Jews to happen in worship and what was allowed for him to, to happen in worship. But with his limitations, he was still devoted to God and he was still praying at that hour, offering his prayer of sacrifice to the Lord. And that is where the Lord sends the angel to encounter him. Let me ask you a question about this for our own lives. 
rather reflect this back, sometimes we feel limited in our ability to pursue God or we feel limited by our circumstances or by our days or our schedules or, or the confines of family or life or whatever it is. Sometimes we feel like I just don't have a lot to give God, but yet here Cornelius is giving what he can in practice of faith to God and God sees his heart and he honors his commitment. And I know that God sees each of us in our lives. And so right now, I just wanna give us a quick encouragement. If you feel like your, your small offerings of devotion or small offerings of, of worship, whether it's like you're driving somewhere to work or you're driving on and you're listening to a worship song and you're singing and you're like, well, yeah, I'm singing in my car. This is so very religious. This is an act of worship. These, these small moments of devoted worship matter to God and he sees them. No matter what state we're in, God looks past the state that we're in or the things that others might disqualify us in and he sees our heart and our devotion to him. Amen? Okay. (laughs) So this got me thinking about this because, you know, in, in thinking about Cornelius and thinking about his devotion and thinking about these times of prayer and these times of worship, and, and the very reality that even if Cornelius had lived in Jerusalem, he wouldn't have had full access to the temple, yet here he was. There's a plane. Here he was doing all that he could to engage with the Lord. And the angel again said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering. Again, what would that have meant to Cornelius? Not only would it have meant that he's seen, but there's something else that this carried with it as well. And I want to go into that. Now, we all know, or maybe we don't all know, but we will now know. If you don't know, you'll know today. That the Jewish nation didn't always have access to their temple. But there was, there was a call in worship to do these things that they, that they experienced. It was part of, of the, the Torah that told them they had to do these sacrifices. They had to do these rituals. This was how they, they experienced their relationship and their worship of God. But if you look at the Jewish history, you know they got pulled into captivity several times in a foreign land. They got occupied several times. Their temple was tore down couple times. There were so many things that limited this ability to fulfill this. So what conundrum would that have put a Jewish believer, like a believer in Yahweh, what would that have done for them when they said they can't offer these sacrifices, they can't do this, they can't do that? Is there no access to God? So I was thinking about that, and I went again on another deep dive to try to understand the context of this. And, you know, there are three pillars And according to Jewish tradition, according to Jewish writings, there are three pillars that the world hangs on. And these are first the Torah, which we talk, there's the study of the law and the sacrifices. So every devout Jew, the Torah was life. It was so important to them. And there was this belief among the sages of Judaism that even if you weren't able to actually do the sacrifices in the temple, if you studied them, if you knew what they were, if they were in your heart and your desire to be able to do them was there, but your ability to be able to do it wasn't, God still saw that as sacrifice. He still saw that as valid. I wanna say this to you right now because I know in my course of ministry and life, there have been times where the good I want to do, I do not do, but in my heart, I know that I want to do these things. And sometimes, you know, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, like the Jews when they were exiled, this wasn't because God wanted them exiled. Their exile was as a result of national sin, of disobedience. How many times in our lives has our sin limited our worship to God? 
and, and just, I'm going to be, I'm going to ask for boldness here. If you could raise your hand and say, yeah, there've been times in my life where my heart was to worship God or do the right thing with God to be obedient to him. But the state of my heart and my brokenness and my sin caused me not to do that. But it didn't mean my heart didn't want that. Raise your hand if that's been true for you. God still sees your heart in spite of your brokenness, in spite of your struggles, in spite of whatever addiction, in spite of whatever sin, God still sees your heart and loves you. The second pillar that this practice of Jewish faith would have, would have relied on without the sacrificial system of the temple, if that wasn't available, the second thing, and again, these are Hebrew words, so forgive my pronunciation, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Avada, which is another thing, was called works of worship. And in the Jewish faith in that time, works of worship, you know, like all of us throughout all of Christian history, sometimes the word works can get polluted, just like the law and religious practice can get polluted and mean become something it never meant to be. So for some of the Jewish community, say in current history, say back in the 1940s and 50s, this, this uh Avada would have looked like building the kibbutzes in Israel because they're working to reestablish their nation. So this got incorporated into this act of worship to establish your nation, to work to pursue that. But God's heart, this would have looked a little bit different. This would have looked more like serve the poor, take care of the orphan and the widow, love those around you, love your neighbor, love God. Like these things would have been like what, actions do we do that express our love and adoration of God, whether it's towards him or towards one another? This would have been avada. The third one would have been, and this is a word that, these are two words that God helped me to pronounce it. Gimot hasadim, the third pillar. This would have been acts of loving kindness, mercy, service. This would have been motivated out of the heart, compassion. So you see, these three things would have been what the pillars of, of religious practice would have been for the Jew in exile, for the Jew without the temple, for the Jew without the sacrificial system. This exists today for the Jewish faith. These three pillars, because they don't have their temple and they don't have their daily sacrifices. These are the pillars of which their faith hang on. And so for someone like Cornelius, who was not allowed to go into the temple, essentially he would have been someone like a Jew in exile. How does he practice his faith? He practices his faith with the knowledge of the word of God, with the worship of God, and with the acts of loving kindness and service towards his fellow man. Making sense? This is why when the angel says to him, your acts of mercy, your acts of, of charity are seen by God as a fragrant memorial offering to him because he's seeing this, he's seeing these acts, he's seeing this devotion and he's saying the temple isn't necessary. You're worshiping God here and now in spirit and truth, which takes us back to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, when Jesus encountered her, again, with a different circumstance, but similar in regard to that the Samaritans were not allowed in the temple in Jerusalem and they were cast out from the society and they were feeling alienated by God and they only had the Torah. They only had the first five books of the Bible, you know, the Old Testament. They didn't have any of the prophets. They didn't have anything else. They had only this. And when Jesus encountered this sexually sinning woman, 
he said to her that access to the Father was here and now because God desires those who worship in spirit and in truth. And that it no longer was gonna be about a mountain in Jerusalem or a specific place they'd need to worship. You can worship God wherever you are here and now because God is here. This is one of the reasons why it's so, the context, context and connection. And maybe if you don't understand the word context, let's say it in the word of interconnectedness of the scripture and the story, how they play together, how they interact with one another, how it paints a bigger picture of who God is and how he interacts with us. Making sense? Thank you, April. So these acts of loving kindness, and, and you see this, reaffirmed in the scripture as well, even from the words of Jesus. We go back to 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said to the Lord, has the, uh, has, the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams, meaning that the sacrificial system is secondary, not as pleasing to God as a heart that hears his word and obeys. And what does God's word say? How do we flesh this out? Um, again, Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Again, your heart devoted to God, your mind devoted to God, your actions devoted to God, rather than some sacrificial system that is just ritual over and over again. And even though those rituals meant something once, like most religion can do and most practice can do, we do something and we forget the purpose and meaning behind it. But God's heart is always the purpose and the meaning. Now we go down to Micah 6, 6 through 8. This is a very familiar passage for some people. This, I love this passage. What does the Lord require? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with our God. Again, the heart, not necessarily the thing, the heart. And Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means, says Jesus to the Pharisees. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. You go once again to Matthew 12, 7. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. So you have Cornelius again, in his time of personal prayer, a man devoted to God with a great reputation among the Jewish people in Caesarea where he was. You have him practicing his faith, limited in his perception with the intimacy he can experience because he's not allowed in the temple. He's not allowed to, to do these sacrifices and these offerings, which are the heartbeat of the Jewish faith. And yet God sees his heart because what he desires is what Cornelius is all about, not the temple. God sees him and he encounters him. I have seen your acts. I have seen your prayers and gifts to the poor. They've come up as a memorial offering before God. Basically, it is as if you had been sacrificing in the temple because this offering, this sacrifice is beautiful and right and good. I desire mercy, justice, humility, love over 
killing of a calf in a temple. And so Cornelius right now, in his faith, and think about this, his faithful journey with God, pursuing God, pursuing the knowledge of God, pursuing what God has laid out, and you can guarantee he's read these things. He's read these words of scripture. He sat in synagogue and heard these things preached and taught, and he has applied them to his life. He is walking humbly. He is doing justly. He loves mercy. He loves God. He loves his fellow man. He has a great reputation among the Jewish believers in Caesarea. And because of all these actions, the angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, this brings me back to a couple different things. This brings me back because it echoes and almost looks really similar to what happened just a chapter before with Ananias when an angel of the Lord came to him and said pretty much similar things, go and find this man at this place. One chapter before, God is orchestrating Ananias coming and ministering to Saul, who would become Paul, who would become the greatest evangelist to the Gentiles and is written most of the New Testament that we then experience as Gentile believers. And in the next chapter, just after he's called, who will be the great evangelist of the Gentiles, he now ushers one of the first Gentiles into the family of faith. Because of his steadfast devotion and love of God. James 1, 27 says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and keep oneself being, from being polluted by the world. I would say Cornelius fits this bill. In the sight of God, Cornelius fits this bill. One problem, in the sight of the Jews, Cornelius is unclean. What a contrast. What men see as unclean versus what God sees as unclean. What religious people will see as unacceptable to God, God looks past and sees the condition of the heart and sees purity, where we often see impurity. Let that stick for you for a minute. Let that confront our hearts if we are in a place of self-righteousness where we are looking at people and thinking they're disqualified from God's love. Bull crap. God sees the heart. Extra gravy for you for this one moment. I have a friend, I have lots of weird friends because I'm weird and I come, my, my life is weird and my testimony is weird. And I have a lot of weird friends that kind of fit in that bill. And I have a friend from Texas who was a former drag queen. Lord, I love this guy. He's, he's so weird. But he's also super Republican now, which is also a weird transition for a former drag queen to be like, I'm a super Republican living in Texas. And you're like, okay. So this guy who shares his testimony all over the country and confronts a lot, he's an interesting guy. I love him. He went to this uh, Republican convention in, I don't know where it was. It doesn't matter where it was. But you know who he ran into? Caitlyn Jenner because Caitlyn Jenner wants to run as a Republican governor candidate for California. Here's this former drag queen who's been confronted with the love and mercy of God, life transformed by him. And he just so happens to run into someone who's still in a place of brokenness and deception, and yet was able to communicate his own testimony and story to someone who was surprisingly open to the words being said. We might look at someone with that much notoriety and see the external and say, oh, that is so far from God, but we do not know what God is doing inside the heart. For the love. For the love. Okay, 
<laughs> Got to get down here a little bit past. So let's talk about Peter. Because here's two halves of this story. We have Cornelius, devout, waiting for a move of God, pursuing God. Angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him, go send people to go get Peter. Simon Peter. Simon called Peter. Peter Simon, Simon Peter. Whatever. Now here's an interesting part of the context of Peter and where Peter is at in this moment. And we know the story. Again, context is important. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, as, these, as this cohort of people were going to get Peter for Cornelius, it was noon, which was, once again, prayer time, religious worship. This is really important for Peter's character because he is very, very religious. And as we know some of the story of Peter, Peter did not like the Gentiles nor the Samaritans. Peter was very nationalist. God bless Peter. I love Peter. Love him, love him, love him. But he was dense and sometimes needed a little extra help seeing God's purposes and plans. We see this so many times in Peter's life. It's like, I'm going to cut off an ear. And Jesus is like, why you do that? Let me put it back on. You know, <laughs> we see this in Peter's life where he is zealous and that fire for, for like the, the, the faith is just huge. But sometimes fire is helpful and sometimes it's destructive. And so we see this reality, but but one of the things that is really beautiful about the context here is we know that Simon Peter was in the house of Simon the Tanner. Again, context. Let me read this and I'll go to context. He went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of food, uh, four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. You can look, there's a, there's a passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel is being told by God to do this act of like, prophetic act that is atoning for the sin of the nation of Israel, both the, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Like it's a big thing. And one of the things he says is lay on your side for 390 days and do this and lay on your side for 40 days and do this and cook your food with human excrement. I don't know what flavor profile that would give the food, but I don't think it would be delicious. So in that moment, Ezekiel says, surely not, Lord, I've no unclean thing has ever touched my lips. And God says, all right, use cow dung. You know, it's like a compromise. Not a great compromise, by the by. Like, I don't want to barbecue over cow patties, but there was this moment where almost the exact same things come out of Ezekiel's mouth that come out of Peter's mouth. And you have to wonder if Peter is thinking, well, Ezekiel got out of it. Maybe I can get out of something here too. He's not let out of it. So he says, surely not, Lord. Then the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now, let me ask you this. Where have we seen Peter having to have something said to him three times before? Anyone remember? When he denied Jesus, he denied him three times. So what did Jesus do? on the shoreline when he was resurrected, what did he do for Peter? For as many times as he betrayed him, he commissioned him three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter was such a passionate guy, but he was dense. 
I think the Lord knew he was dense and said, lather, rinse, repeat as needed to instruction to Peter because it's like, do you get this? Not yet. One more time. Do you get this? Nope. One more time. Ah, the light in your eyes. Up the sheet goes. Let's go. He's got the instruction. This was what was happening with Peter. Three times he was told, do not declare what I have declared clean, unclean. Now, but there's something else we can, we can see that and we often see that and go, oh yeah, Peter needed. His heart was hard toward the unclean. He needed rebuked. But we miss a detail that is important for context. Peter's heart was being transformed by God. Peter's heart was being softened by God. And we know that because he was in Simon the Tanner's house. Tannery in the old, in the old context of the Jewish nation in that time, a tanner was a person who would cut the skins off of dead animals, make leather, all that. But you have to understand that that job made the person doing it and their home ceremonially unclean. They were not allowed to go to the temple until they went through purification. Peter had willingly put himself in the hospitality of a home that by virtue of the home itself would make him unclean. Not only that, it would smell real bad. I mean, real bad. The detail of the house by the sea means the house where the winds will carry the stench away. The house on the outskirts of the city. The house outside of culture. Because tanners, like shepherds in that time, in that culture, were viewed as social outcasts. They were not included in full fellowship in community because they're ceremonially unclean. And I don't want to be unclean because I want to worship God, so I'm not going to associate with you. Yet this is where Peter stayed and where he was being cared for and ministered to when the Lord changed the entire dynamic. So I want us to see that, that Peter's heart was being moved by the Lord. The hard edges were being softened. And it was in that position of willingness to be transformed that God did this incredible thing. What about us? Where in our lives do we need to be softened by the Lord? Where are these hard edges that we still have that make us not quite ready to minister in a way that God wants to minister or to release a move of God that is going to transform the world, but we can't get there because our hearts are too hard. I'm not trying to be a hard word right now. (laughs) Pastor in church streaming, don't cuss. But there's something here we have to see. There's something here for us that we have to understand and see. And again, we don't see without context. Where in our lives are we still hard-hearted? Where the Lord might want to do something so powerful and profound through us, but our hard edges and our senses of self-righteousness or our whatever it is, our hang-ups, or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, our limitations, our sin, our struggle, our addictions, our, our judgmentalness, whatever it is. What are those places in your lives right now that the Lord wants to soften those edges so he can use you powerfully? The house was on the outskirt by the sea, away from the rest of people, away so the stench was contained. Peter was up on the roof praying, which I probably think was to avoid some of the smell, to find a a quiet, less smelly place 
for his time of devotion and worship to the Lord. And it's in this moment that the Lord gives him this vision, saying this thing, do not call what I have called unclean, or called clean, unclean. Do we understand that this is God fulfilling something that he promised to do 2,100 years before this? Let me give you the scripture for that. Genesis 12, verses one through three. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Meaning through your lineage, through your line, through your people, the Messiah of the world comes through Jesus, through Abram. 2,100 years ago, God promised to do this. And right here in Acts 10 and 11, he's accomplishing it. How many of you get frustrated that God is not showing up on your timetable? Raise your freaking hands if you get frustrated with God not showing up. Oh, stop it, all of you. Shut your face, holes. Raise your hands if you get frustrated that God's timing does not match your expectation. Thank you. This side, not convinced. I, did, I was looking peripheral. I see you. Again, raise your hands if you get frustrated. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? I have had so many prayer times where I'm like, God, I love you, but your management style sucks. Right? 2,100 year promise. It's like when Jesus said, I'll be back soon. What Greek word was that? Because I'm sure there's meaning we don't know. Like what soon was century? What, I mean, millennia or two? You know what? God moves in his timing, but God is always moving. I need to take a sidebar for a second here and explain to you again, historical context, why God did this here and now in this moment. We know that when the Jewish people, when the Hebrews came out of Egypt, they went through the desert. They had their own little times of moodiness and discipline for, you know, a 10 day journey took 40 years. How many of you have felt that before in your own life? This would have been a lot easier if I just obeyed God. Yes, yes, it would have. So the Jewish people enter into their land. God tells them, choose life, choose to obey. Obedience is life, disobedience is death. Choose to obey, I'll bless you or you'll get cursed. Choice is yours. I'm not gonna control you, but I'm gonna warn you. And what do they do? What do they do? Over and over again, they choose wrongly. They disobey, they rebel against God. They choose their own path and God disciplines them because we know from his word, he disciplines those who are his. He sends them into exile, which is like the cosmic timeout. Several times, occupation comes. One of the people, one of the nations that occupy the land of Israel from Alexander the Great, the Greek conqueror, comes in, takes over that whole part of the world. And you know what he does with that? He brings the Greek language. Everyone had to have and know the Greek language to do commerce and all that. It was like, conform. But you know what that did for the gospel in this moment, in this time, even through their disobedience, even through the long waiting, you know what that did? That connected the entire known world in one language. 
which made missionary work a lot easier. Right, Anthony? Lord, any missionary who's had to go to a foreign land and learn the language is like, this would be easier if everyone spoke the same language. Do you understand that God was orchestrating, not controlling or doing, but in his sovereignty, he was in charge and he was using the the disappointments. He was using the disobedience. He was using absolutely everything that they did to prepare the way to make the gospel be able to spread easily. And this moment where Cornelius is brought into the family of faith is the moment that every decision made right or wrong, God operates and uses for his kingdom and for his glory because those who love me, all things work together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purposes. Romans 8, 28, amen. I'm running out, I'm out of time, but I'm gonna, I got, I'm gonna, shut up. No, I will not, I have more to say. I have like two minutes that I can squeak eek by. Sorry, John, I love you. You can, you can rebuke me later. But this is the word of the Lord. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna jump ahead. Uh, there's, okay, my appeal to you, there is so much more meat on these bones. Do not wait for the pastor to tell them to you. Open your Bibles. Open your Bibles, get your computer. Go to biblehub.com buy a commentary, buy other things to help you understand the context because context brings the most beautiful reality to these passages. What we have here, once they show up again, Peter says, why did you call me? He said, because the angel of the Lord this, and he tells them the gospel. And while he is explaining the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit falls on this group of Gentiles because Cornelius wasn't just there by himself. He invited his whole freaking family and associates. There's a big room of people Peter isn't even done preaching when Peter later in 11 verse uh, chapter 11 says, and the same thing happened that happened to us in the beginning. Tongues of fire came down. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in tongues and the seal of salvation was given to the Gentiles right then and there in spite of the fact they were not baptized. They were not circumcised. They were not Jews, but God saw fit to fulfill his 2,100 year old promise to say, now the blessing to the Gentiles. They are part of the church right now. And Peter says, who can stop us from baptizing them? They're clearly saved. Chapter 11 is just him going back to Jerusalem and going, I don't know, like this, what happened? A Gentile's now part of the family, amen. Peace out, go do. That was, that's Drew's translation of chapter 11. And I'll say this, last thing, maybe. I'll say this last thing for personal application. There's so much here that has nothing to do with us personally other than like God has given us salvation and invited us to his family. But something I want to say to each of you, again, every eye up here, you need to hear this today. I feel so convicted that the Lord needs us to hear this today. We all hate the smoke, yes? Okay, yesterday I was up in one of my favorite spots. When I first moved to Medford, this spot took my breath away with the sheer... I've got no time, come on. Lone Pine Park, there's a splash pad up at Lone Pine Park. It's near our neighborhood. We take my kids there in the summer when they were younger. And the, the Siskiyou Range and the valley is so breathtakingly beautiful. And I have forgotten in the months of smoke that we've had 
how much I love that view and how much that view speaks to me of the nature and character of God. And yesterday I was up there, I saw the Siskiyou Ranger go, oh, they're gorgeous, I love it, there they are. And the Lord said to me, they've been there the whole time, Drew. Some of you don't know where God has been because of the circumstances that are not pleasant. You haven't heard his voice. You haven't seen him move. You are wondering why he's abandoned you. You've been looking at the context of this whole freaking of a world that we're in right now. And you go, where are you, God? He is here the whole time. The smoke might obscure his presence, but he's here the whole time. He is always moving. He is always using every choice, good or bad, to orchestrate his purposes and his will. He doesn't make things happen, but he uses the things that happen to accomplish his purposes and his will and bring his kingdom here and now. If I can leave you with this from this one passage, from this 2,100-year-old promise that got fulfilled in this one moment in Acts and ushered us all into the family of faith in the five seconds I don't have, God is working in your life. Trust that he is good and he is there and dig into the word because it's life-giving. Amen? Amen. Goodbye. God bless. Amen. Enjoy the day.